Welcome to the Emancipate Your Mind podcast. I'm your host, certified religious transition and trauma recovery coach, Terry Hales. I help people step out of the shadows of religious fear and shame and embrace their authentic selves with love and empathy. If you're ready to throw off the shackles of learned binary thinking and explore a more nuanced approach to life, this is your playground. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Emancipate Your Mind podcast. This week, we are continuing our conversation about the different attachment styles and how they relate with high-demand Christianity. So we've already talked about our attachment styles with God. We've talked about secure attachment. Last week, we got to talk about anxious attachment. And this week, we're going to talk about avoidant attachment. And avoidant attachment styles, these are the people who tend to keep others at arm's length emotionally because they don't either trust other people with their vulnerable parts or they're not even aware of their vulnerable parts. And they don't realize that when difficulties arise, they could share those with other people and get support. They're so used to having to rely on themselves They may not even be aware of their process. It may be a very subconscious process of, oh, I'm feeling a difficult feeling. I'm either going to suppress it or I'm just going to logically work through it and I don't need other people. So they're often strong, independent, self-reliant types. They don't like to depend on others for their emotional needs and they tend to dislike having others rely too much on them. And I think that avoidant attachment styles are some of the most misunderstood. There is this idea that avoidant attachment styles are conscious of their feelings, conscious of other people's feelings, and they're choosing to like avoid or dismiss how other people feel. And that's not the reality. The reality is, is that avoidant styles were neurologically wired very early in life to dismiss their emotional responses in favor of practical or logical ways of handling problems. So These people are often very outside of their feelings and outside of their bodies. They're often not aware of the nuances of emotion going on inside of them because in their childhood, expressing emotion was either completely ignored or it may have gotten you more adverse consequences. So if you were sad and you expressed sadness, you may have gotten rejected. You may have been reprimanded. You may have been told to go to your room and cry. You may have been told to suck it up. Your parent may have gotten emotionally dysregulated when you were really angry or really sad or really struggling because it triggered inside of your parent either a discomfort with emotion, the sense that they had an inability to help you, or a feeling of competitiveness on a subconscious level of either your needs get met or my needs get met. And if I have to choose, I choose my needs. So here are some signs that you may have an avoidant attachment style. This comes from Heidi Preeb. She's on YouTube. Her information is all based around attachment styles and personality styles. And I have gotten so much from this information over the past month. I really enjoy the way that she communicates her ideas and kind of digs down into some of the new research. So if you're wanting to know more about different attachment styles, I highly recommend Heidi Preeb's work. Dr. Kim Sage is also probably woven in through here. I'm not 
quoting her at all, but I've listened to so much of her stuff over the last several months that I'm sure it's in here. There is some stuff by uh, Dr. Romani that is probably woven in in here as well. And then I'm also going to reference a couple of books in the show notes. Attached is one of the books. I can't remember the authors right now, but I'll make sure that that's in the show notes. And the other one that I'm probably going to be drawing from quite a lot is Loving Like You Mean It by Ronald Fredrickson. You've heard me quote his other book, Living Like You Mean It, when we've been talking about emotions. But Loving Like You Mean It talks about using those emotions and working with our attachment styles in order to have healthy relationships. So if any of that sounds interesting to you, all of these resources will be in the show notes. But here are some signs, according to Heidi Preeb, that you might have an avoidant attachment style. So first, you take radical responsibility for your own life and your own choices, and you get very frustrated with those who seem to you to continuously play the victim. And this is probably one of the biggest cues. You're going to hear it throughout this podcast. If you are really repulsed or disgusted or angered by people who come across as a victim, who place blame on other people, who seem to whine a lot about their life or who share too much about their difficult emotions, it's usually a pretty good indicator that you have some avoidant attachment style patterns going on in your life. Like many things, I think that there is a spectrum. I don't think you're either all avoidant or you're all anxious. I think that there is some crossover. So I don't want to put anyone into a box here, but it's something to get curious with. If you find yourself really just upset with people who seem like drama queens are always playing the victim, are overly emotional, this, you know, this might be something to look at. You maybe have some avoidant attachment style patterns in your life. Now, the reason this is an issue is because the avoidant attached child learned early in life that if they had a problem or if they wanted to get something done, they were going to have to take care of it themselves because their caregivers either overtly or covertly got hostile when the child showed need of any sort. And when I say hostile, I don't mean abusive. I mean that they like shut down, um, got really rejecting, maybe sent you to your room, totally ignored you, or they may have yelled at you or uh, gotten in your face or shamed you for having those kinds of emotions. This was especially true if the child showed an emotional need. So if you showed your caregivers a physical need and they took care of it, but they weren't there for you when you were afraid, when you were sad, when you were angry or hurt or jealous, then you may still have an avoidant attachment style. This doesn't mean that your parents neglected all of your needs. They just didn't know what to do with your emotional needs, particularly. So if you showed an emotional need, your parents either ignored it, consistently ignored it, or rejected it, or got angry about it. And so you learned that you'd have to find solutions on your own because no one was coming to save you from your own feelings. And because of this, the avoidantly attached person is very careful not to put their problems on other people because they learned that's not what problems are for. You don't share your burdens with other people. You don't share your problems with other people. And if you do, you're just setting yourself up for disappointment. If I share my problems or my troubles with this person, the chances are really high. This is what you learned in childhood. The chances are really high that I'm either going to be ignored or I'm going to be rejected or I'm going to be shamed 
And that's going to make the problem even worse. So I don't put my burdens or my problems on other people. And you may have even gotten the message that that's how you show love. Your parent may have inadvertently taught you like, we're in a loving relationship. And so you don't put your stuff on me. That's not love. Love is keeping your stuff to yourself. So one of the complaints often made about avoidant attachment styles by securely attached people or by anxiously attached people is that these people can feel emotionally very cold and aloof or surfacey. And it's really difficult to get like in underneath that like wall that they have built around their emotional selves. And they also get frustrated that these people don't ask for help, that they do it all themselves. I know that I've heard situations where people have been like, do they not trust me? Am I doing something that's not trustworthy? This is especially true if you have somebody who's an anxious attachment style bonding with someone who has an avoidant attachment style. When they find out that the person with avoidant attachment style has tried to figure out a problem on their own or they're grieving and they've been doing that on their own or they just got diagnosed with something and they've kind of kept it to themselves, the anxiously attached person starts going, is it me? Am I not trustworthy? Do you not really care about me? Like they start going through their like fearful, anxious monologue, right? Where the avoidant person might be thinking to themselves, this is me showing you that I love you and trust you. I haven't shared this with you because I don't want to worry you. I don't want to put my problems on you because that's what love is for me. But the reality is, is it may not even occur to those with avoidant attachment style that they can share their problems with others and get the support of others or ask for other people's opinions when they're weighing large decisions. And because of this, they often get introspective, they look for solutions, and they immediately begin pursuing those solutions. So it really does look to some other people like they're cutting people out, but that's not what they're doing. They're trying to take responsibility for their own stuff so they aren't a burden on the people that they love. and they are trying to stay in their own lane. Now, the second sign that you may have avoidant attachment style is intimate relationships feel like a lot of pressure. This doesn't mean that you don't want intimate relationships, but past experience has taught you that people are going to want a lot from you and you're going to feel emotionally exhausted sometimes, maybe even trapped, and it feels like a lot of pressure. A lot of times, those with avoidant attachment styles find themselves in relationship with anxious attachment styles. And this is because anxious attachment styles do all the work, and avoidant attachment styles maybe aren't totally sure of how to connect deeply emotionally with others because they are sort of detached from that part of themselves. So they're not really sure what attachment looks like. They're so used to being independent. And anxious attachment styles will kind of like worm their way past that wall a little bit. That kind of feels good to the avoidant attachment style for a while until the anxiety kicks in for the other person and they're like, talk to me, get close to me. And there's a lot of demands. Or if they want to know about the other person's emotions and they can't adequately express them, it can feel really, really like a pressure cooker almost to an avoidant attachment style. Anxiously attached people also like to rush into connection and intimacy because that's where they feel most comfortable and calm. When they're by themselves, they feel really anxious and sometimes unlovable. But when they're in a closely bonded relationship, their nervous systems can start to relax because they're like, okay, I'm attached. I belong. 
oh, everything's going to be okay. But it's totally different for the avoidantly attached person. They want to take their time and decide whether the relationship is a good investment of their time and energy because they understand that they're going to have to tweak where they put their time and energy, how they arrange their schedule, how they arrange their personal space. And they want to make sure that this is a good investment. Again, everything is very logical and pragmatic. And so these are not going to typically be the fool's Russian kind of people. And it can feel like a lot of pressure when the anxiously attached person is like, let's connect right now. Let's spend all of our time together. And the other person's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I'm still trying to decide like, you know, how much time I want to spend and whether this is a good fit because they're analyzing everything. Even if you're really excited by the relationship and really likes the other person, it really can feel like a lot of pressure. Them wanting to take their time and analyze things doesn't mean that they don't like you. It just means that they want to logically go through their checklist. And because avoidantly attached people are often detached from their emotions, when their partners ask them to do something together, when they're like, hey, we should go out or hey, let's let's go do this big fun trip. Or when they ask them how they feel about things. So especially like in conflict, because they don't have the skills to honestly assess their emotional needs, they'll sometimes give the other person the answer they think they want to hear to get out of that uncomfortable situation as quickly as possible. So one of the ways I think avoidant attachment showed up like early in my life is Kevin, when we would have conflict, I think we've talked about this on the podcast before, he would say, well, what are you feeling? And I honestly wouldn't know. And early on in our relationship, I would be like, I don't know. I don't know. And he was like, come on. Like, if no, if you don't know, who who knows? You're the only person that knows what's going on inside of you. And I remember because that felt so uncomfortable, I started just like almost making stuff up. Like, uh, this is what's going on. I just would give him an answer to get him off my back so that then I could be alone to emotionally regulate and process. And then if I, you know, was wrong or I felt like I needed to like clarify, then I'd come back later and clarify. But at the beginning, it was just like, you know, tell me what you feel. Tell me what's going on. And that felt like so much pressure. It was like agony to try to describe what I was feeling because I had no words for it. And I wasn't even in tune with it. Often I didn't, I mean, I knew I was dysregulated. I knew I didn't feel good. But I didn't know if that feeling was jealousy, loneliness, anger, you know, grief. I had no idea. I had no words for it. And I, I really couldn't even identify it. So all this can lead the avoidantly attached person to feel like the closer a relationship gets, the more like a pressure cooker it feels. Because the closer a relationship gets, the more kinds of conversations like this you're going to have. And the more the other person is going to want, you know, that intimacy and attachment. And sometimes the avoidantly attached person either isn't fully aware of what they're feeling and they can't communicate it. And that feels like a lot of pressure and anxiety, or they, they just want to like smooth things over. That's, they just want to keep everything calm so everyone can stay in their lane. Now, the third indicator that you might have an avoidant attachment style is that you feel the most comfortable making major decisions alone, whether you're in a committed relationship or not. You want to be the person that is solely in charge of making sure that your needs are met. So food, shelter, clothing, money, sex, 
all those kinds of things. You want to make sure that your basic and most core needs, that you only rely on yourself for those things. This may look to others like you're trying to be controlling, but for you, it's just really important to know what you want out of life and that you're pursuing a plan to make those things happen. And so the way your mind works is, okay, I have to take care of my needs. This is what I want. This is how I'm going to get it. And then you look for friends and partners that also have that sort of like same ideal. You want to find somebody that shares those same goals. Because you've had to rely solely on yourself to get a life that feels good to you, you may be very focused on what kind of career you want to pursue, where you want to live, what life experiences you want to have. And those things feel very non-negotiable for you. And who you pursue those things with, the relationships you have in your life, those might feel a lot more negotiable. Because close relationship hasn't been a way for you to get your emotional needs met in the past, you've gotten used to relying on yourself. And so there has to be, in an anxious, avoidant attachment place, there has to be space for the avoidant style. There has to be room to make their own decisions, room for autonomy, room to be an independent person in this relationship, which is going to take some flexibility on the anxiously attached person side. But on the avoidant attached person side, there has to be some concessions for showing up and spending time together and those sorts of things. So there's some give and take if you have an anxious and avoidant committed relationship. Now, the crazy thing is, is for an avoidant attached style, it may not occur to them that other people make decisions together and actually enjoy it, that there's a sense of security in making decisions with another person and knowing that if things don't go well, you can find solution to the problems together. This is going to be kind of a learning process for an avoidant attached person in relationship because these people have learned to trust themselves far and above other people. And it can feel really stressful to trust another person during big decisions that will affect their primary needs. Now, the fourth indicator, which we've already talked about a little bit, is that you can outsource your wants, but not your needs. So when it comes to meeting your survival needs like food and shelter and clothing and safety and all those things, you want to be the only one to meet those needs. You want to feel confident that those needs will always be met. So you only trust yourself to do this. So if you have the style of attachment and you were raised in high demand Christianity as a woman, you probably really struggled with staying home to raise kids and transitioning to living off of your partner's income. It probably gave you a lot of anxiety to trust your partner to fully provide for your needs. And you felt more secure if you were bringing in even a little bit of money. So having even a little side hustle, a little business helped you feel more secure. Like if something happened to them, you could take care of yourself. You needed that reassurance. Now, you're okay with relying on others for things you want, but these are also things that you've decided you could live without if it doesn't come through. And sometimes you consider romantic relationships and friendships wants, things that are nice to have, but that you would keep living without them. And this allows you to navigate the fact that you need to rely on others for these things. 
So because you have to rely on others to negotiate relationships, you may have reframed friendship or romantic relationships as wants. Because that way, if people disappoint you or they don't show up or they leave your life, then it's not as devastating. You've decided you'll keep living without them. You'll be sad, but you'll keep going. It won't be the end of the world. So that is another indicator for avoidant attachment style. The next one is you'd rather meet the practical needs rather than the emotional needs of others. So contrary to popular belief, avoidantly attached people actually care deeply about those around them and they want to show up in meaningful and loving ways. But because you don't always feel super competent with your emotions and navigating someone else's emotional needs doesn't feel like your strong suit, you tend to show up for others with acts of service. You're attentive to the things that people you love need, and then you're proactive in trying to meet those needs at a logistical level. You really shine at providing practical support to those you love when they're ill or need some kind of service, but you may freeze up if someone starts crying or showing some other kind of emotion because you haven't yet learned how to navigate your own emotions. So if you've started to do a lot of your own work, you might have already begun to heal like the parts of you that you've been ignoring for a long time, some of those emotional parts, and you've learned how to like sit with them and empathize with them and accept them and get curious with them. And that will extend to others as well. But what we're talking about here is like maybe who you were before you started healing at all. It's just some good indicators, like who you were as a teen and a young adult, even though perhaps you're moving to a much more secure attachment style now. The next indicator is when you're feeling hurt, you tend to withdraw instead of reaching out to others for repair. It usually doesn't occur to you that you could co-regulate. In fact, that word co-regulate may not even make sense. Your instinct is to spend time with yourself, regulate and repair your own state of mind, and then perhaps at that point, return to the relationship. In fact, you may feel like you're being kind to the other person, like we said before, by separating yourself from the relationship to take care of your own stuff. You're trying not to burden the other person because that's how you view your emotions. You view your emotions as a burden on others. So you've learned when I love someone, I don't burden them with my stuff. Instead, I take ownership for my stuff, I work through it, and then I come back to the relationship. So avoidant attachment does conflict resolution practically on their own. They work through their own emotions, they come to their own conclusions, and then they decide on their own whether they can continue the relationship or not. And they may feel like that is secure attachment, like I'm taking ownership of my own stuff because we talk about codependency out in the world a lot. And I guarantee you, those who are avoidantly attached are like, oh, yeah, I don't do that. So I'm securely attached. But if you're doing that whole process, like let's say somebody really pisses you off, you take your anger, you process your anger, you come to your own conclusions, and then you decide on your own whether we're having a relationship or not. And often you don't talk to the other person. You, you don't even bring it up with them. It's not like you process your emotions and then come back and say, okay, here's what I learned about myself. Like, let's process this together. It's all on their own. Secure attachment, however, does take responsibility for recognizing and communicating their emotions and experiences, but they're open to the experiences and emotions of others as they navigate problems in relationships. So 
as I've moved towards more secure attachment, I don't have to have a full resolution. It's more about just recognizing my emotion and labeling it and knowing why it's there. And then we can communicate. A securely attached person will come into the relationship and say, hey, I noticed I'm feeling angry. And I think this is why. Is that what happened from your perspective? And then you get the other person's perspective and their feelings. And together, you figure out how things kind of evolved between the two of you. You clarify any things and you regulate yourselves together. So you're not asking them to name your emotions or fix your emotions. You're planning to do that yourself, but you're getting their feedback as you do it so that you can mutually understand each other, mutually support each other, and grow closer together in the relationship. Next, you're open to relationships, but you struggle to find partners who are sufficiently self-sufficient. You would like to be in a healthy relationship, but you struggle to find people who will respect your need for time and space. And when you do find such a person, you struggle to know how to connect with them because they're likely also avoidantly attached and you both kind of struggle to acknowledge and communicate at the emotional level needed to glue the relationship together. Now, this is one of the things I was like, okay, I at least have some avoidant attachment inside of me. And y'all, I am all kinds of confused about which attachment style I am. The more I read, the more I'm like, I don't know. I had some of that. I had some of that. I'm differently attached with different people. My therapist says that that's disorganized attachment. But the more I'm reading about disorganized attachment, the more I'm like, eh, that doesn't fit. So it's okay if you're confused. And it's okay if you're like, I don't know. This is all just stuff to get curious about. But I find that when I'm in friendship, I really struggle to find friends that want to be close, like want to continue to communicate and that there's a bond, but who also respect needs for time and space and personal projects and hobbies and stuff like that. And so I'm getting better at navigating that. I would say I have a handful of friends that fall into that category where I'm like, okay, like one of my best friends, you guys have seen me post about her on Instagram. She is a wedding coordinator here in Colorado and we like our our friend dates are getting together. We gab for like 15 to 30 minutes and then we spend three hours sitting side by side working. So she has a lot to do. I have a lot to do. And both of us really enjoy not being alone. We like being there co-working side by side. And we're both like go-getters and we have a lot of ambition and we want to connect but we also want to get our work done. And so it's been really fun to find out that she and I both love getting together at the coffee shop. We will catch up over coffee for 15 to 30 minutes. And then we schedule like four hour appointments. So we catch up for a little bit and then we sit there just side by side and bang out emails and, you know, studying for podcasts and transcripts and all kinds of things that would be not as fun to do sitting alone by myself at my house. and. I found some people like that, and it's been fun learning to communicate my needs. But this is a real struggle for people with avoidant attachment because we want time and space to be by ourselves and to like go after our own goals. But we do like being attached to other people. We like being in relationship. We just want to remain an individual inside of that relationship. We want to be able to pursue our goals, pursue our dreams, 
without judgment or feeling like we're somehow letting the other person down. Okay, the next indicator is that you're highly protective over your time and physical space. You might not be consciously aware of it, but all the time and attention you put into your daily routine, your schedule, your lists, and your physical environment is you trying to emotionally regulate yourself. There's nothing wrong with it, but just know that that's probably you trying to emotionally regulate your life. If you have an avoidant attachment style, you probably feel the most comfortable in a very predictable environment that is under your own control. You probably have a very robust morning and evening routine. You might be like me. I schedule my days in 15-minute increments. Like I know what I'm doing down to the 15 minutes. It's gotten a little better and I've gotten much more flexible, but I plan out my day every single night. I also plan out my week every single Sunday. So I know what I'm doing on what days. And the people in my life that are in close relationship with me know that you don't call me the day of unless it's an emergency and say, oh my gosh, let's do this today. I'm not going to be able to make that work. I have literally planned out everything I'm going to do and when I'm going to do it. I even plan out my free time and my playtime. And I know that that's a little neurotic. And yet it works for me and I like it and I've decided I'm keeping it at least for now. So people that are close to me in my life understand that I set aside time every month for friends. And if they want to be on my schedule, like by all means, be like, hey, when is your next availability in your schedule? I will schedule you in my calendar and make time for you because I want friends, but I'm a very structured person. And it's just part of who I am. And I kind of love and accept that piece of me because Part of the reason I've achieved so many things in my life, and I do love achievement, is because of this piece of me that I think has some avoidant attachment patterns. She achieves a crap ton of stuff because she likes her order and and her lists. Now, because we like our order, it can feel very stressful to share a living space with someone else, no matter how much you like or love them, or to let someone else have control over your schedule. Because how will you meet your needs if you don't have control over your environment or your schedule? So avoidantly attached people may really struggle to go with the flow or be flexible with schedule changes. Number nine, you rarely feel emotionally vulnerable. Many people assume you have a bunch of deep fears and vulnerabilities and secrets that you've been keeping and you're just waiting for the right person that you can trust to like let it all spill out. But it's actually not true. You often are completely unaware of your deep emotional experiences until you start doing conscious work. Now, what this looks like is that when you very first start doing conscious work, you might be surprised what's unearthed. There may be feelings or experiences or things like that that you looked at through very rose-colored glasses. Like You often look at your childhood as a very idealistic, rosy time in your life. And if you do notice adverse childhood experiences, you may have reframed them as something that was for your own good. Now, in my own life, what this looked like, like one experience that comes to mind, I moved every single year of high school. So I grew up in a small town where I knew almost everybody, almost everyone knew me. And then over spring break, My mom came home, gave us five days to pack up our stuff, and then we moved to South Carolina over spring break. I didn't even get to finish my freshman year. And this continued to happen throughout my high school experience. I was given a month's notice to pack up my stuff and go to Argentina. 
just nine months after I left, you know, Texas to go to South Carolina, I got to spend nine months in South Carolina. And then I was on my way to Argentina where I didn't speak Spanish. I had a very basic understanding of Spanish because our father didn't teach us. And I was going to go to a Spanish speaking Catholic high school. And so I went there and I was there for seven months. And then we went, we went back to South Carolina. And then when I finished my junior year, we went back to Texas. Now, my mom felt really bad about this experience and would constantly apologize. And I think in order to get my needs met, my needs for security and attachment and, you know, to get the love and belonging and stuff that I needed, I reframed that whole experience as, oh, no, it was such a wonderful adventure. Like, I got to know all these new people. Look, I learned a different language. And I still feel that way about many of those things. I did learn a lot of great things. And I became very versatile and adaptable. And it was hard. It was really difficult to go through my entire high school experience saying hello and goodbye to new people over and over and over again. And then to land in my old high school with the people I had grown up with. And they had changed so much in those three years that I was gone. The people I left as a freshman were no longer the people I knew when I came back to them as a senior. And so that was really difficult. But I couldn't acknowledge that because the avoidantly attached piece of me, whether that's you know my whole attachment style or not, the avoidantly attached piece of me knew that crying and whining about my experience would not get me what I wanted, which was the support and love and care of my parents. And so I stuffed that down, reframed it, reassured my mother, but then it all came back up in my 30s when I was talking with my therapist. And that was something I really had to sort through were the adverse experiences that came up during that specific time. And as I sorted through that, some other adverse experiences that I had reframed or painted through rosy colored glasses kind of came up. And that can feel really scary if you're avoidantly attached. Like you might just be like, I don't want to know. And I definitely fell into that camp for a long time. Like, I don't want to know. However, working through it has given me freedom to choose other things, not only for my own life, but for the way I'm parenting my children. Yeah, we just don't feel emotionally vulnerable very often because either we've reframed it and made it fine. So we feel fine most of the time. And when we don't feel fine, we just deal with it. We go off on our own. We deal with our emotions and then we come back after we've already fixed everything for ourselves. Now, a lot of people have mistaken ideas about avoidantly attached people. Avoidant attachment does not mean that you're antisocial. In fact, you may be a very social, easygoing person, and you can be a whole lot of fun to be around. You may have a lot of friends and or sexual partners. You might be the life of the party, However, you keep it on the surface. You don't go deep emotionally with people. This style also doesn't mean that you're selfish or that you don't care about the people in your life. Avoidant attachment types are often very loving, but they show their love in very practical ways. So an example that immediately comes to mind is my dad that would wake up early to warm up my car before I drove to school every morning because he didn't want me to be cold but had zero clue, like would get super awkward with me when I would cry because of a breakup with a boyfriend, like had no idea what to do with tears, but would go out of his way to do practical things to show his love and care for me and for my siblings. So warming up our car, 
making sure our oil was always changed, buying us our favorite exotic fruits, lots of little things like that, like working on a classic muscle car with me so that I'd have something cool to drive. When I went to high school, I got to drive a 1969 Rally Sport Camaro to high school for my junior and senior year. And it was because of partly my dad's thoughtfulness of what that would be like to drive to school. And he also wanted a muscle car. So it was like a win-win, right? So that might be how you have seen avoidant attachment show up. In fact, avoidant attachment um, is often associated with men because men are often conditioned and socialized to be stoic, to suck it up, be a man, don't cry like a girl. And they get taught that certain feelings are not allowed, that they won't get the respect and love and belonging that they need if they show emotion. And so it's not just their parents, but all of society that conditions them to be stoic, to keep their emotion in. And that can lead to avoidant attachment styles where you don't know what to do with emotion. And so you show love in these very practical, logical ways. That also leads to some of the stereotypes like if you share your emotions with someone who is avoidantly attached, they're not going to sit and empathize and like mirror back to you unless they've had some training. They're more likely to go into fix-it mode because that's what they do best. That's what they're comfortable with. You're going to tell them a problem and they're going to be like, okay, let's logically work through this and find a solution so we can move forward with a plan. And that's, I mean, you see that, that parody all the time between a woman trying to vent to a husband and a husband trying to fix it. I think a lot of that comes from the conditioning in our society that men are supposed to be these stoic, emotionless creatures. And I think it can lead to avoidant attachment. And this definitely shows up in women too, though. So this is not just a man attachment style. This is an everyone attachment style. This can be available to everyone. But if you feel more comfortable showing up in practical ways or solving people's problems than you do listening to their emotions, this is just something to get curious with. So what leads to this avoidant attachment style? The parenting environment for avoidantly attached children was consistent and predictable, but it was often consistently and predictably hostile to having emotional needs. So there were at least certain emotions that were considered not okay by your caregivers, and you learned that you were more likely to get your needs for connection, love, and belonging met by either appearing as if you didn't have any emotions or by appearing as if the only emotions you experienced were positive. So if you grew up in a household where you were not allowed to show any big emotions, like all big emotions were considered sinful, you may have developed avoidant attachment style. Or if you were only allowed to be like happy or peaceful or calm or joyous, friendly or loving, you may have also developed an avoidant attachment style because certain emotions were not okay. Now, if you had a parent with avoidant attachment style, your parent likely lacked the tools to recognize and work through their own emotions. So they were unable to recognize and help you work through yours. So if they did recognize you were struggling, they likely began to solve your problems pragmatically because that's how they deal with their own struggles. And they pull apart a problem. They find a logical solution. That's where they feel most comfortable and competent. And to you, it probably felt like they weren't listening to you or like they didn't understand your feelings, which fairly they may not have. 
But in their own way, that was them trying to listen and support you in the best way they knew how. Or if they had that deep aversion to like victimhood, if you cried in a certain way that sounded like really victimy or poor me, or if you, you know, hashed out your emotions too much, they may have outright rejected your emotions because that felt uncomfortable. That's not what you do in loving relationships. You keep your shiz to yourself and you work through it yourself. However, if you had a parent with anxious attachment style, this parent may have seen your displays of difficult emotion as a threat to getting their own emotional needs met. So the way it works is people with anxious attachment style almost kind of have a scarcity mindset around love and attention and support. And so for the anxiously attached parent, there's only so much of that to go around. So unconsciously or consciously, they may have felt like if you were taking up all the emotional energy, there would be none left for them to care for their own emotional needs. And so they may have rejected your big emotions or ignored your big emotions or shamed your big emotions because they needed those to go away so that they could get their own emotional needs met because they didn't realize there is enough emotional energy, there's enough support, enough love, enough belonging out there for everyone because that wasn't their experience as a child. So how does high-demand religion kind of affect this attachment style? There were a couple of things I thought of, but I'd love to hear from you. What do you think of when you think of your high-demand Christianity experience? When you think of being in a cult or being in some other kind of high-demand group, even your family, what was it about those environments that really made you feel like you had to stuff emotions, that it wasn't okay to share your problems or ask for support. So here were a couple of the ones that I thought of. The first one was toxic positivity. If you grew up in a community that celebrated positive emotions, but looked down on, avoided, or even demonized negative emotions, you may have learned that you only belonged in the group if you masked part of your human experience. So in these communities, thought-stopping techniques like praying, chanting, singing, meditating, and turning problems over to God were often used to stop the experience of emotions that were considered negative. So like in Mormonism, when we experienced lust, we were taught to hum a favorite hymn or say a little prayer to stop the emotion from happening. Same for fear, anger, and jealousy. When we were grieving or anxious, we might have learned to count our blessings so that we could minimize and negate the feelings we were having. When we're taught to do this by our whole community, not just by our parents, it reinforces that our difficult emotions aren't welcome and won't just not get us the care and support we need, but in fact, they might get us labeled as a sinner and rejected by the community and perhaps even by God. So you can see how this like toxic positivity can really force us to like shove our emotions down or like what we were talking about in our society with the way that we socialize men. If you were encouraged to be emotionally stoic, to really express very few, if any, emotions, and if you did express emotion to be very muted, then you can see how this would lead you to feel like my emotions are not welcome here. I'm going to shove those down and instead I'll become a very logical, rational being that really doesn't take into account emotion. And I have to tell you, if you're listening to this podcast and you're like, yeah, I don't see anything wrong with that, maybe take a look and see if you don't have some avoidant attachment style. If you're like, no, that's fine. We don't need to be attached to emotion. Might be a good indicator 
that you grew up in a situation that promoted avoidant attachment styles. So the next way that I could think of that high demand groups can promote avoidant attachment styles is through dissociation. So one of the biggest traumas of high demand groups, whether religious or not, is that they seek to slowly displace your authentic identity with the identity of the group, whether that's a family group or a religious group or a self-improvement group or even a psychology cult or an educational cult or a political group. Using subtle or sometimes overt fear and shame messages, the group causes the member to detach or dissociate themselves from their own personal identity and their inner wisdom in favor of the wisdom of an authority or small group of authorities. So after a while, what happens is the member of the cult or the fundamentalist group may no longer be able to identify even their like subtle physiological cues in their bodies. So they might not even be in tune with their body enough to recognize like small aches and pains or when their toes or hands are cold, things like that. They might not be able to recognize or label their own emotions or listen to their thoughts with curiosity because curiosity is banned. And if this person does recognize some of these things, they're taught to distrust them unless they conform to the group's expectations. If this person is unable to recognize their own emotions, or if they do, is taught to discredit them or box them up, then think about how this is going to affect them if they try to parent children. We use the tools to help our children that we use ourselves. And if we don't have the tools, we can't give those to our kids. When parents are taught to ignore and dismiss their own feelings, it makes sense that they use the same method to deal with their child's feelings as well. So this can also lead to avoidant attachment in children. The third way I was able to think of that high demand Christianity, at least from my own experience, because I don't know if this is true for the broader evangelical Christian kind of experience, but in Mormonism, self-reliance was a huge factor in developing avoidant attachment, at least for me. So in the LDS church, self-reliance was a part of being seen as a disciple of Christ. So for instance, Marion G. Romney in April 1981 conference said, the principle of self-reliance grows out of a fundamental doctrine of the church, that of agency. Elohim, which by the way is God the Father, for those of you not coming from Mormonism, in creating man and placing him on the earth, gave him agency to act for himself. Then he went on to say, our own actions determine our blessings or lack of them. It is a direct consequence of agency and accountability. So right there, he's basically saying, you're responsible for your own happiness. If you're not happy, it's your own fault and you need to do something about it. President Joseph F. Smith, so he was the prophet of the church back in the late 1800s. So this was General Conference in 1898, said men and women ought not to be willing to receive charity unless they're compelled to do so to keep them from suffering. Every man and woman ought to possess the spirit of independence, a self-sustaining spirit that would prompt him or her to say when they're in need, I'm willing to give my labor for that which you give me. No man ought to be satisfied to receive and do nothing for it. So again, this idea of I have to pay my own way. Even if somebody gives me something, I then owe them in return. I'm not allowed to accept charity without doing work in return. And I've seen this in 
friends of mine that are still members of the church and family members by feeling like they're obligated to keep tabs. They're obligated to reciprocate. So if they receive a gift, they must give a gift in kind. And it has to be of equal value. So we don't receive any support or love or care or gifts for free that we are fully responsible for paying our own way. And because in high demand religions, we're often encouraged to become perfectionists through all or nothing language and ideals. It's really not a hard leap to go from receiving monetary charity, which both of these two men were talking about and had all kinds of judgment that they spewed about it in these two talks, to receiving any kind of support or help from others. So if you had a parent that believed it was righteous, quote unquote, right, to figure out your problems on your own, maybe with the help of a higher power, but to not bother other humans with your issues unless it was dire, it makes sense that you might have developed a pattern of just keeping your problems to yourself and struggling to ask for help or support when it would have been useful. Now, what I found interesting is as I was researching this, there were several church articles from the evangelical world that emphasized grace and how we're weak and we can't do anything for ourselves, that we have to rely on God for all things. This kind of pushes us towards the anxious attachment side of things, that we are powerless and we need someone to save us from ourselves. And we need someone to, you know, like comfort us and accept us because we can't do that on our own. On the other hand, high demand religions that emphasize works over grace or agency or self-reliance like Mormonism does may produce more of an avoidance style of attachment because you show goodness, kindness and spiritual maturity by handling things yourself in those cultures. Again, if you're confused, it's okay. I'm confused, too. The more I read, the more I feel like I don't know. But just know, like, it's just something to get curious with. You don't have to have all the answers. And there may be places in your life where you show up more anxiously or people that you show up more anxiously with and instances in your life or people that you show up more avoidantly attached with. And all of that's okay. It's just get curious with it. You don't have to label yourself and you don't have to fit into a box. This is meant to be information to like help you start to like get the wheels turning and get to know yourself better, not to diagnose you with anything. Okay, beginning to heal. Where do we start with avoidant attachment? Now, one of the first things is going to be to give yourself permission to feel and to just get curious about your feelings. Because you were taught to detach from your feelings, and that your feelings were not important. This may be a little bit difficult. Getting comfortable with emotions, recognizing that they're not good or bad, because we often have messages like that when we're avoidantly attached, that some emotions are good and some emotions are bad, and bad emotions need to be locked down at all costs. When really, emotions are just information about our experience, and they're just telling us how we're perceiving the world and what our needs are. The second thing we can do to heal is we need to begin to unpair cause and effect from our emotions. So a lot of us with avoidant attachment styles feel like we're not allowed to have an emotion unless we have irrefutable evidence for it. 
And this gets really hard if we've been experiencing like little small adverse experiences or if we've been experiencing little microaggressions or if we're triggered by something that happened in our childhood by something that happened today. So unless we have like a big piece of evidence that happened all at once and we can say, see, this was undeniably a reason to get angry or a reason to get jealous or a reason to feel sad then we feel like we're not allowed to have that emotion, that we have to have a huge justification for feeling something big and uncomfortable. When in reality, all of our emotions make sense. They do. Your emotion is valid and it makes sense even if that reason isn't immediately apparent. If we can start to make room in our life for our emotions, to accept them for what they are instead of feeling like we need to prove them in court. If we can say, okay, like I'm feeling angry right now. That is valid. What is causing the anger from my perspective? Just getting curious with it, allowing it to like talk with you. This doesn't mean that the conclusion that we draw, because remember, avoidantly attached styles, we like to draw conclusions on our own. And then we decide what we're going to do in our relationship based on our conclusions that we draw on our own. So what we're trying to do is first validate our emotion because validating it and acknowledging it is going to allow it to open up to us and communicate to us, which is something that we need in order to be able to communicate to others. Let's say we're feeling angry. We would say, okay, I can see you anger. You're here. You're feeling angry and that's valid. What's going on? And you would let the anger like talk to you without judgment or feeling like you need to justify it. Then you would check in with the other person. Find out what their experience was, their perspective was, and like let them know about your feelings and what triggered that. And it may change your feelings. Just hearing their perspective may change your feelings because you may get more information that you didn't know before. But in the moment, with the information you have, know that your emotion makes sense and is valid. If you felt like you were being left out, and it made you feel really lonely, and it made you feel rejected, that is valid, even if that was not what was intended. So we need to separate intention out from impact. Your impact makes sense and is valid regardless of the intention. And then once we feel like we understand ourselves, we can come to the other person and like then check for intentions and for the other person's experiences and kind of work together to co-regulate. The next thing we can do is we can also kind of disentangle emotion from action as well. So a lot of times because avoidantly attached people tend to be very action-oriented, we may believe that if we feel a certain way, we have to act a certain way to express that emotion, and that's not necessarily true. So I can feel angry. That doesn't mean that I have to rage and throw things. And even the idea of that can feel really scary for avoidantly attached individuals. Like we don't want to hurt others. We don't want to burden others with our emotions. And we don't like feeling out of control. So the idea that if I allow myself to feel angry, it then means I need to express anger. However, that's been modeled for me can feel really scary. Understand instead that you're allowed to feel anger and just notice the sensation. You can get curious with what it's trying to say to you. If you need help understanding it, you can actually take that emotion and be like, okay, you and I are going to a therapist. You can hire a therapist to like help you get curious with it and sort through it. 
And you can try to figure out what's at the root of it, what caused this emotion. And then we can choose to act from a place of that understanding, which is usually not big and scary. And it's actually something that people who are avoidantly attached feel very comfortable doing. The next thing is if we can pay attention to the emotions in others that trigger disgust and rage inside of us. Now, because avoidantly attached people learned that certain emotions weren't okay, there may be a subconscious part of you that's deeply repulsed or even angry when others show deep vulnerability or displays of emotion, especially if other people take them seriously and then meet their needs. Because think about it. It's like that child part of you is like, that's not fair. When I was little, if I showed emotions, I got reprimanded and I got rejected. And how is it okay for them to be all dramatic over there and acting like a victim and get their needs met? So there's a part of you that feels like it is deeply unjust. Seeing someone rewarded for playing the victim or being publicly emotional feels disgraceful to you. And I want you to pay attention to this. Get curious with the emotions that trigger these feelings for you because they're usually the feelings you weren't allowed to feel as a child. And they're the emotions you're going to need to resensitize yourself to for healing. So if you're really upset with people who cry publicly, get curious with that. If you feel like it's really unfair, you're disgusted with people who publicly talk about breakups or trauma or any of those things, get curious with it. And then last, learning to share blame for problems in relationships. Because avoidantly attached individuals learn to take radical responsibility for their own well-being, when problems arise in relationships, they may also take all the blame. If you grew up in a household where blame or asking others to take responsibility for their hurtful actions got you nowhere or even made the situation worse, you may have learned that when you had a conflict with others, that you just needed to deal with your emotions by yourself or disengage with the situation that's causing the negative emotion. And this leads avoidantly attached people to take all the responsibility when actually some blame would be healthy. And we talked about this earlier, when we feel like we have to take all the blame or we're not allowed to talk about hurt with our caregivers, what actually happens is we reframe what happened and we either suppress all of the bad memories and just look at our childhoods through a rosy lens or we decide that the bad things that happened to us the things that we thought hurt us at the time were actually for our own good and we just didn't understand so if this feels like something that resonates with you give yourself just some time your childhood was likely not all good nor was it all bad it was a little bit of both it was a paradox because all parents all parents, even the securely attached ones, even the ones doing their emotional work, even the ones that are taking all the parenting classes, all parents will occasionally cause harm. And most parents, I would say the vast majority of parents, will provide their kids with some moments of beauty and kindness and acceptance. And so give yourself time, and it may take a while to catalog both the things that were wonderful, but also, you know, some of the hurts that happened and allow yourself to look at it from a very fair lens. Now, this past week, we had a really awesome discussion on the weekly live call. Those happen every Wednesday at 6.30 p.m. Mountain Time. And 
I want you to be a part of that if that's something that feels like it would be helpful and supportive for you. Right now, we have a core group of, I don't know, a handful of people, five to 10 people that are showing up on a regular basis. And we are having some great discussions about attachment. We talked all about anxious attachment last week. We're going to be comparing that with avoidant attachment this week, really getting into how we experience these things, what we've noticed in others, how this may have shown up in, you know, our experiences with religion and, you know, what we've tried or what we want to try in order to begin to heal. I love the community building aspect of this group. And if you want to be a part of it, go to emancipateyourmind.org, click on the box that says support the podcast and give a gift and choose any monthly donation amount, any monthly amount, whatever you feel like you want to give, that is going to get you onto the email list and get you to be a part of these weekly calls. If you want to be added to the email list earlier, please send me an email at terry at emancipatedcoaching.com with the subject I donated, and I will get you added to that list like within 48 hours. Otherwise, I get a list of new donors every month on the 5th, and I want to make sure that you are not missing out on, you know, a couple weeks of calls because I think they're very beneficial. I think they help us see ourselves more clearly help us answer our own questions and practice some of these skills that we're learning about to be our own selves. Like there's something really valuable about having a community where you're allowed to share your real thoughts, get validated, you know, find solutions to problems, like kind of push back a little bit if you want. I love all of it. And you're very, very welcome to join us. I would love to see your face and get to know you better. I look forward to that call this upcoming week. And I will see you next Sunday for our discussion on disorganized attachment.